This week, causes of unplanned readmission to hospital, and preventing catheter-associated urinary tract infections. Hello and welcome to The Rounds Table, a weekly podcast about major new research in medicine hosted online at Healthy Debate. My name is Amol Verma. I'm your host, and I am a resident in general internal medicine at the University of Toronto. Today, I am joined by Kieran Quinn, who is a resident in internal medicine, also at the University of Toronto. Hey, Kieran, how's it going? Great, Amol. Thanks for having me back on the podcast. Oh, it's good to have you back. You su- you survived day one, so you're back for at least one more one more shot. We'll see if you make it to another. Uh, this is round two. You see if this I can stay two. on my feet. Yeah, that's right. Oh. Boxing reference. <laughs> Muhammad Ali did recently pass away. Exactly. I'm reading a lot about boxing lately. So, um, completely unrelated to boxing. I tried to think of some clever segue, but failed. Sometimes uh, it doesn't come. Well, sometimes you get knocked down and then get back up to host- get back up. In a, similarly, sometimes patients get discharged from hospital and get readmitted. That was really bad. A fair but analogy. Let's move on. Let's move on. So, Karen, tell me about, you wanted to talk about causes of readmission to hospital. So, tell me about the study that you want to discuss and give me a one-line summary. So, this was a really interesting study. It was published in JAMA Internal Medicine in early March of this year by Andrew Auerbach and his colleagues. Uh, And the title is Preventability and Causes of Readmissions in a National Cohort of General Medicine Patients. The study looked at the readmission characteristics for patients who uh, were discharged from hospital and brought back within 30 days in an unplanned uh, readmission across 12 hospitals in the United States. And they really wanted to delve down into the factors that were associated with admissions they called preventable. Uh, In other words, those that were unnecessary for these patients. Um, And principally what they found that a quarter of all uh, admissions uh, are, readmissions I should say, are preventable. Um, And there were four major things that were associated with them. Uh, Largely decision making in the emergency department, uh, a lack of communication with the outpatient physicians, uh, early discharge from hospital with inadequate symptom control, and a lack of goals of care discussions or advanced care planning for patients who had severe terminal illness. Okay, interesting. It seems like there is a lot of substance here. So uh, let's go through it somewhat systematically. So tell me what we knew about the topic of readmission and unplanned readmission to hospital for medical patients um, before this study. So this is not a new problem that has faced uh, hospitals for years. Uh, The patients are consistently readmitted to hospital after being discharged for a variety of reasons. And there have been literally hundreds of trials and, you know, on the order of hundreds of millions of dollars, if not more, put into research and interventions to try to prevent this. Um, as you know, that hospital admission rates, uh, along with patient age and their uh, comorbidities, are continuing to rise. So our hospitals are under increasing pressure to try to keep patients out of hospital as best as possible. Um, And as I said, all of the efforts to date have really failed to significantly reduce the number of readmissions. And I think that boils down to at least what the authors uh, point out is that there's not a really good understanding uh, of the minutia of why this happens, especially at a national level um, that can be applied to help inform future interventions to, to make a dent in this problem. Okay, so their purpose of doing the study was to try to really understand in a granular way the factors associated with readmission and to 
determine what proportion of readmissions are preventable. Is that right? That's absolutely correct. And, and the way in which they do it is, is really fascinating, and we'll get into that in a bit. Um, but they look at both uh, sort of administrative data and clinical data that comes out of you know, testing and things in the hospital, but then they also get down to the ground and interview patients and the physicians who cared for them to try to get a better picture about what's happening on the ground as well. So it's, it's really interesting. Okay, so why don't we get into the methods? So tell me what, uh, what was the study design here? So the study was an observational study. They followed uh, patients forward in time who were discharged from hospital and then readmitted uh, within 30 days to the general medicine unit. Um, they did this at 12 different U.S. hospitals across the country. Um, and they, they ran the study for a year between uh, April of 2012 and 2013 and examined all patients who um, were adults, uh, English-speaking only. Um, and then their selection was to take uh, five patients per week that were randomly selected from any one of these 12 different hospitals um, and look at their uh, readmission uh, and previous discharge um, uh, characteristics and data that was generated from that admission. Uh, and then as well as uh, for patients who were able to survey them um, and interview them and the physicians who cared for them. So just to be clear, Kieran, they included patients in this study whose admission to hospital was a readmission. So they enrolled patients who had been previously discharged within 30 days and now were readmitted to hospital. Is that right? That's correct. And just to clarify, they didn't look at every single patient at all of those 12 U.S. sites who were readmitted following discharge within 30 days. Instead, they randomly selected from that group of patients who were readmitted uh, to choose five patients uh, and look at those patients' characteristics and to try to interview those patients and their caring physicians. And you mentioned then that uh, there are some inclusion and exclusion criteria. So can you tell me a little bit more detail about what types of patients are included? These are medical, not surgical patients, uh, I believe, right? That's correct. So the, it was fairly simple exclusion criteria. They wanted medical uh, patients, so non-surgical patients, um, they, it, it could not be a planned readmission. You know, some patients come back for a specific reason and need to be readmitted to hospital. These were unexpected readmissions. Um, and then patients needed to be adults. They wanted to look at the adult population and English speaking only. Okay, so tell me what they found. So 1,000 patients were included in the study over this one-year time period. Uh, and that was because of the way that they selected five patients per week. Um, of these patients, 27% uh, who were readmitted were deemed to be preventable admissions to hospital. So a quarter of them effectively didn't need to come back into hospital. Um, and the, the, the factors that they found were, that were most strongly associated with and increased your risk for readmission were, one, decision-making in the emergency department. And this was associated with a nine-fold increased risk of readmission and accounted for close to 10% of all patients who were readmitted. Number two was a lack of, of communication and planning to the outpatient physicians, such as individuals, family physicians, for example, which was associated with a fourfold risk of uh, readmission, and that affected about 5% of the patients who were readmitted. The third was discharging patients too early from hospital who had inadequate symptom control. 
Uh, so for example, somebody who has shortness of breath due to heart failure was discharged from hospital too soon and they needed to come back for those symptoms, presumably. That was about a fourfold risk increase as well and affected about 10% of the patients. And then lastly, um, patients who had terminal illness or who are very severely ill um, and these did not have a documented goals of care discussion during the initial index admission uh, had a four times increased risk of being readmitted. And that also affected about 5% of, uh, of patients. Uh, and then there was two other things that I just wanted to highlight. One were some patients were unable to attend outpatient appointments. And that guy was about a threefold risk of uh, readmission, affecting 8%. Um, and some uh, patients uh, did not have adequate plans for monitoring drug safety that they were uh, treated with during their index admission. And that was a two and a half fold increased risk of readmission, affecting 5%. Okay, Karen, so that's really interesting. Uh, there's a lot of substance there that we could dig into as to like the, the you mentioned six different factors that are associated. Uh, and just to be clear, those are the factors that were associated with preventable readmissions, not all readmissions, but those were more likely if patients had those factors, they were more likely to have a, a preventable readmission. Is that right? That's absolutely correct. You compare preventable readmissions to non-preventable readmissions, and those are the factors that come out for the preventable ones. Okay, I am going to ask you very briefly about how we decided whether something was a preventable admission or not. But before we do, just a quick moment to reflect on the factors that you mentioned. So these factors were identified because physicians reviewed the patient cases and determined what were the factors that were associated with that readmission to hospital. So um, some of those factors are, I think, pretty intuitive that I, I would agree with. So for example, poor communication at the time of discharge, um, a lack of goals of care communication, very interesting. Um, there's an interesting thing about fails to attend a follow-up appointment. And I think there's a, a question about cause and effect there. Mm -hmm. So if you're sick, you're more likely to miss a follow-up appointment, right? Yep. Um, and so it's hard to just say that it's because you didn't go to your follow-up appointment, you had a readmission. That's right. There's certainly, you know, some questions around the causality there. But then, and then the really other interesting point about not adequately treating the problem or the symptoms on the first uh, hospitalization. Yeah, that's correct. Part of me thinks a lot of this is could be criticized as being a hindsight is twenty twenty problem, um, and so I wonder how you would respond to that about sort of is it so easy to just look back and say well you didn't adequately treat the symptoms in this case, um, as opposed to you know we're what we're not capturing here is all the patients who were discharged from hospital who did not get readmitted to hospital, right? And so maybe there's lots of people who were discharged with the same degree of symptom symptoms remaining at the time of hospitalization and they didn't get readmitted. So, you know, how did the authors, first of all, decide whether an admission was preventable? So let's come to that question. And then the second question is really, is this just too much of like hindsight and thinking about an ideal situation when we talk about preventability? Okay, well, those two are questions are uh, surprisingly interrelated. So let's first talk about how you determine if a readmission is preventable. So imagine a mole that you are in paradise right now. We are not recording in the in the circumstances that we are, but you rather you are in. What a, makes you think that this is not paradise for me, Ken? Uh, I, I don't know. If this is your paradise. <laughs> this then is I want my out. Paradise. I want out. <laughs> okay. So imagine you're in Hawaii. You are in a spa, 
and uh, you're drinking some sort of fancy pineapple drink while we sit here and discuss medical literature. This is effectively what the, the study design asked the physician adjudicators to do when they were reviewing a patient's file. They, they said, imagine an ideal healthcare system where everything works perfectly and all of the proper you know, things that you're supposed to do for a patient uh, are happening smoothly and without, without any hitch. And then look at what happened to that patient and why they were readmitted and figure out what's different between the system that they have and your ideal system. And if that's the case, then some of those uh, situations are preventable. So just to explain a little bit more what that means is, imagine for example, and this is an example they give in the paper, that a patient's readmitted because they couldn't uh, obtain a post-discharge appointment uh, to go see, say, for example, their family doctor. So that would be an ideal situation. Everybody should see their family doctors after they leave hospital. Uh, but in this situ in the circumstance they provided, the patient wasn't able to do that. That's not an ideal system. Therefore, it's a preventable readmission for that patient. So that's so interesting. Um, it's a really interesting approach, first of all, really like applaud the author's creativity. Um, you know, and obviously there are a lot of criticisms one could level. I'm just not sure that I could offer a better way of doing this. But the example you gave of, you know, uh, whether a patient didn't see their family doctor because they could not uh, get an appointment, it's not totally clear that if they had seen their family doctor, their readmission would have been prevented. Right? Absolutely true. So, Absolutely so true. it's a challenge. But very interesting approach to the methodology. Okay, so then let's come to... Um, your second question, which was about the so-called selection bias and looking and hindsight bias and looking at patients who were only readmitted and the problems uh, that are associated with them versus, you know, the presumably hundreds or thousands of patients who were discharged and not readmitted at all. And whether, say, for example, their symptoms were equally as bad as a patient's who was readmitted. Right. Or they also couldn't get a family doctor's appointment they, and they also, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera. So uh, there is, there's no way around that other than to say it's a limitation of the study. Um, and in an ideal world, you would have a study that looked at both of those cohorts of patients. Um, but then interestingly, they, they get down into, you know, asking the patients uh, about what happened. Yeah, so you mentioned that there are a couple other sources of data collection. So what did the patients have to say? Um, you know, for, for a, they said a variety of things, obviously. And what was interesting was that many of the patients uh, felt that, you know, they were, they were satisfied with the care that they got. Um, there was no, con you know, they were adequately expressed their concerns and the doctors listened to them and the doctors spent enough time with them. These are common things that we hear, at least anecdotally, as one of the reasons why, you know, complaints are launched against physicians or other things like that. But that, that's not what they found in this case uh, that was at least contributing to preventable readmissions. Um, and there was two things that really came out of the interviews that, that spoke to why patients were readmitted. And I'll just read you the representative quotes that they gave in the paper because they're more illustrative than, than my interpretation. So one quote says, after I left the hospital, I did not know how to contact my doctor if I needed to. And 50% of, sorry, 50 patients, uh, that's 19% of them, strongly agree that this was the case uh, in, their, uh, in, the, in the reasons for being readmitted. 
And the second was, after I left the hospital, I had problems related to drinking alcohol or using drugs. Um, and that was uh, associated uh, with uh, uh, preventable uh, readmissions. So clearly uh, addictions and mental health issues in some, some circumstances also contribute to readmission. Okay, very interesting. So just to summarize sort of the, the main findings, a quarter of all readmissions to medicine are preventable. May be preventable. May be preventable. Um, and primarily, you know, system problems like lack of communication from the in-hospital setting to out, as well as some of the decision-making, uh, you know, are associated with the rates of this readmission. Okay, let's change gears. I want to talk about catheter-associated urinary tract infections and a large quality improvement initiative in the United States that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine on June 2nd, 2016. And the one-liner is that a large nationwide quality improvement initiative demonstrated an ability to reduce catheter-associated urinary tract infections in hospital, especially in non-ICU settings. Okay, fascinating. Interested to learn more about it. Let's get into a little bit of the background about why this study was done and its importance in the current framework of our understanding. So absolutely, catheter-associated urinary tract infections is one of the most common healthcare-associated infections. It's also, we talked about preventability um, in your paper. Um, so it's a theme running through this episode. So this is thought to be one of the most preventable or avoidable hospital-associated or healthcare-associated infections. Catheter-associated urinary tract infections was actually one of the first projects in the United States by the uh, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid in terms of not reimbursing hospitals more for a complication. Uh So they very early on identified this as a preventable complication, and they determined that if patients have prolonged visits in hospital as a result of this, those hospitals would not be financially rewarded, and if anything, might be penalized for the the presence of these complications. So it's really important. So these catheter-associated infections sound like a major burden on the healthcare system, and Clearly, something needs to be done at a national level to try to reduce this this problem. Is that accurate to say? Yeah, that's that's definitely been the goal, and this is not a new idea. Um, the paper describes a project that started in 2009, where the United States Department of Health and Human Services released a national action plan to prevent healthcare-associated infections, and part of that was tackling uh, catheter-associated UTIs. And the goal of that program was to reduce catheter-associated UTI by 25% from uh, 2009 to 2013. But despite all of those efforts, actually the rates of catheter-associated UTI increased by 6% during that time frame. So in response to this failure, uh, the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, along with the American Hospital Association and a number of nationwide partners launched an effort to implement what they called the Comprehensive Unit-Based Safety Program, or CUSP, to reduce catheter-associated urinary tract infections. And so the, that was started uh, around 2011, the first cohort, and the results from the first four of nine cohorts of that project are described in this paper. So it sounds like we might be on the cusp of a major breakthrough in the treatment of and prevention of catheter-associated infections. 
The okay. likelihood of you returning for a third episode just decreased. decreased dramatically. I'm okay with that. Amol, tell us how they went. They they designed this study and went about addressing this problem. Yeah. So. This was a large nationwide quality improvement initiative, which was uh, on one level called the Bladder Bundle Initiative, which just sounds wrong to me. It does kind of sound, bundling bladders doesn't sound It doesn't sound great. But the main features of this program were a centralized coordination and dissemination uh, infrastructure uh, with a central quality improvement team and then state level leaders and then hospital level implementation teams. And so there were several steps to the program. The first step was to recruit institutions and institutions were assigned to nine different cohorts, which would begin implementation at different times. The first four cohorts were um, inpatient units. And then the second five cohorts were emergency department units. So this is the first four cohorts, which is the inpatient unit. And the intervention really uh, was tailored at each site, but had sort of three major components. The first was some type of daily assessment of the presence of a urinary catheter and whether it needed to be there. The second component was proposing alternatives to avoid catheterization. And the third component was to emphasize the importance of aseptic technique when placing a urinary catheter. And then there were other components that could have been included, such as monitoring of rates of infection and providing feedback to uh, the units that are participating. So each site could adapt these suggestions to their local environment. So this is a very pragmatic project. So along the sides of pragmatic, take a quick sidebar. It's a very intensive sounding quality improvement initiative with multiple levels of you know, managerial teams right to the very top. Clearly, it's a scalable project because they're doing it on a widespread uh, uh, population of, of hospitals and different departments within those. But is this a practical thing that, that other centers could, you know, tomorrow set up and just go right, ahead to, go right ahead to do? Yeah, that's a really good question. So the number of hospitals involved in this project uh, was nearly a, thou- a thousand units, more than 600 hospitals. They presented data in this paper from 926 units in 600 hospitals, the ones for whom they had good data capture. So lots of hospitals participating the hospitals that participated represented more than 10% of U.S. acute care hospitals. Okay, so as you said, big project. Um, the question about generalizability is important. Are the ones who do choose to participate different from the other 90% of you know right. uh, uh, patient care, acute care hospitals that, um, that don't participate? So I think it's a legitimate question. And you're right, there's a lot of infrastructure involved in this. There was no cost-effective analysis presented in this study, so I can't tell you whether it was deemed to be cost-effective. But there are two, I think, important objectives. And and one, so one specific objective was to reduce the number of catheter-associated urinary tract infections. So that was the single specific objective. The second objective was to improve patient safety culture. And they had a number of metrics of that. They don't report that in this paper. That would be probably a subsequent analysis. But you could understand why. So the goal is to use this lever point to improve general culture around patient safety and quality. Um, and and so that all this huge coaching infrastructure and uh, centralized education materials, et cetera, um, the idea is to develop that infrastructure that could then be used for other initiatives. Right. Makes sense. Let's find out what happened and uh, what their principal findings were. Yeah. So their principal 
outcome, the primary outcome in this study was the rate of catheter-associated urinary tract infections. Their, their second outcome is the proportion of patients who had indwelling catheters. Uh, I told you a little bit about what the intervention looked like. And so there are results. So they, I, I mentioned that they're pre presenting data from 926 units in 603 hospitals. These were in 32 states, as well as the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico. So, you know, very good representation across the country. Of the participating units, about 60% were non-ICU and 40% were intensive care units. They found that at baseline, there were 2.8 infections per 1,000 catheter days. Okay, so that's their baseline rate. And that decreased to about 2.2 infections per 1,000 catheter days, which is a 22% relative reduction. And when you adjust for hospital characteristics, what you find is that there's a larger reduction in non-ICU settings, about a 32% reduction in non-ICU settings, but no significant change in the intensive care units. So potentially better to target this intervention to the non-ICU setting. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that seems like what the... So certainly this intervention did not seem to move the needle much in the ICU, but it did reduce catheter-associated UTIs in the non-ICU setting with a relative reduction on the order of 20... of Actually, if you look specifically in the non-ICU setting, 30% or so. So wow, so very, very important findings. Um, what about catheter use in these patients? Right, so... When they adjusted for hospital characteristics, they found a significant change, again, in the non-ICU setting where uh, the proportion of patient days that involved a urinary catheter. So the way they measured catheter use was the total number of catheter days divided by the total number of patient days. Um, I have to say the rates they found were high. So they found a baseline rate of 20%, 20.1%, and then that decreased to 18.8% in the after the intervention. So sorry, I just need to clarify. You're saying that a fifth of all patients on their in their hospitals were in this study were using catheters? Right. So basically one in five patient days right. had a catheter associated with it, a urinary catheter associated with it. That does seem high. I mean, anecdotally, in my own experience in our hospital, I, I, it would just seem like I don't have nearly that many patient days where they have catheters in in place. Yeah, I agree. Now, one of the things is to remember is that this is medical and surgical units. And so in surgical units, uh, you know, you there's often on the day of surgery and periprocedurally, you may have more catheter use. Right, right. So that could be it's a it. fair point. Um, in the intensive care setting, the rates of catheter use was about 60% and there was no change. Um, so again, no change of the intervention in the ICU setting, um, but some reduction in the non-ICU setting. So, so overall, this study, this large national sh study showed um, a significant reduction in catheter-associated urinary tract infections, a relative reduction by about 30%. You said that that was super impressive. I, I think it is impressive, certainly when you look at the relative number, that's a pretty significant relative reduction. And when you consider the number of infections that this could involve over the whole population, that's probably very important. Um, but the, the absolute reduction, you know, is on the order of less than one infection per 1,000 yeah. catheter days. So, yeah. you know, we're still talking about a large population level effect. And then the other thing was, I'd have to say that the reduction in catheter use is pretty modest as well, from 20.1% 20 20 down to 18.8% in the non-ICU setting. So like a 1.3% absolute reduction in catheter days. Again, seems to be fairly modest. Like my takeaway from this would be uh, impressive scale study, significant benefit, but like of modest effect size. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, I wonder if th- there's been a lot of efforts in the past to try to reduce catheter use. And I wonder if at a certain point you sort of regress to the mean and, you know, a certain number of patients, albeit we said this seemed high to us, but a certain number of patients just need catheters while they're in hospital. Yeah, maybe maybe the we're achieving a certain degree, like you can't do much better than that. I'm I'm not sure because like I said, the rates of catheter use seem to be high and the benefit seems to be somewhat modest here. So right. um, to the proponents of, of patient safety and quality, I think this is encouraging at least to for two major reasons. One, this is an important and high burden problem, catheter-associated urinary tract infections, and we've been able to move the needle. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's encouraging. And two, this gives us some information about where to apply our efforts. And the in the non-ICU setting, seems that we're more effective and perhaps we need a different set of interventions or a different approach in the ICU setting. Right. Um, I think it's interesting you said, uh, you know, we've, we've moved the needle. I might have said we've diverted the stream. Um, and moving upstream further, uh, I want to find. I want to know from you, Amol, what, what are you looking forward to next? What, what's coming uh, down the pipeline from these studies? What would you like to see the next study publication that comes from this, uh, uh, this particular cohort of patients? Well, I feel uniquely unqualified to uh, answer that question, and currently I'm still a little bit blown away by your uh, double use of the word stream (laughs) related to the urine uh, study that we're talking about. But I think the interesting thing I'd like to see is some reporting around the patient safety culture and Mm. see whether they were able to capture any data around that. Uh, I think it would be very interesting. I think that I agree with that. I think that that's a really interesting thing that the changing culture is tough. And uh, it may require these types of national scale interventions to try to really move the needle on culture change. Absolutely. Okay. So thanks, Kieran. That was a a good conversation. Let's change gears to our last and final and favorite part of the episode every week, which is the good stuff segment. Mm -hmm. So tell me something short and sweet that caught your eye from the world of medicine this week. Well, Amal, I'm an Irishman. I enjoy drinking beer. And I've read a study... Uh, that was uh, published about a month ago that said that patients or individuals who drink beer, uh, and that's different than those who drink other types of alcohol, have lower beta amyloid uh, concentrations in their brain. And just so you know that those beta amyloid is linked to Alzheimer's disease. So just maybe, uh, seen to be be proven in the future, uh, having a beer or two a day prevents against Alzheimer's disease. Who knows, but I'm going to enjoy my cold beer tonight just the same. I hope you uh, are correct. (laughs) So am I. (laughs) worry about the public health messaging around the benefits of beer consumption, and I'm deeply skeptical of such types of observational analyses. Where was this paper published, may I ask? Uh, it is a basic science paper from oh. people who had brain biopsies uh, in, in during autopsy, I should say. It is an alcohol clinical experimental research. So I completely agree with your concerns around these types of study and the more important, broader implications of excessive alcohol consumption. Uh, but nevertheless, it was interesting to me I don't think uh, that that's any reason why you shouldn't enjoy your beer any less this evening. Yeah, and, and I have one beer tonight <laughs> and no more. <laughs> okay, um, my good stuff recommendation is um, about guinea worm. 
Uh, so, Kieran, do you know what guinea worm is? I actually do not. I assume it's a worm from the country of Guinea. Well, I think you would not be wrong about uh, that assumption, although it's actually found in many parts of the uh, uh, tropical world. Actually, so guinea worm is a parasitic infection. It is an incredibly painful parasitic infection in which humans ingest the larvae of the worm from drinking contaminated water and then the larvae grow into worms that live in your skin and emerge through your skin through a painful blister wow. the worm comes out of your skin but when the painful the blister is so painful that people try to seek relief by putting their foot in cold water yeah. and when the blister pops in cold water millions of larvae are released thus perpetuating the cycle in, 19, in the 1980s, there were more than 3 million cases of guinea worm disease every year. And in 2006, there have been just two cases. Both of the cases are in Chad, and both are believed to have been contained before they had a chance to spread. So there's been a large effort uh, pioneered by the uh, Carter Center, the foundation or, uh, organized by President Jimmy Carter, mm -hmm. um, to eliminate guinea worm. They've made remarkable strides, and we are getting very close to eradicating the disease. So um, there is an interesting article about it in NPR. I encourage uh, folks to check it out if they want to hear and read about a global health good story. Very fascinating. Thank you for sharing that, Amal. Okay. Thanks very much, Kieran. Uh, pleasure to do this, and let's do it again soon. Great. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can find us at healthydebate.ca slash the rounds table. Follow us on Twitter at rounds table or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash rounds table podcast. Thanks for listening.